Hi, this is Bob Sorrentino from italiangenealogy.blog. And today we have a great guest, Kai White. Uh, Kai and I met through Facebook, like I think most of us meet these days. And he did a fantastic chart for me. And he also writes several books and does some research. So welcome, Kai. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So... My first question for you today is, I know your family goes way, way back. So how did you get started doing your research? I have always felt a pull toward my ancestors. One of the things I did growing up is ask my mother's mother all she could remember about her parents and grandparents and that sort of stuff. And even at 12 years old, I wrote that stuff down. My other grandparent was my father's father. I, both of my remaining two grandparents died before I was born, so I never got to see them. And uh, I did the same thing with my grandfather. I would ask him about his wife, my dad's mom, how they met and that sort of thing. And I've always written that stuff down. And my grandfather took me to his older brother's house. And that older brother had uh, his, their grandmother's family Bible. And her name was Mary Ellen Crockett. And in Texas, that means something when you've got Crockett blood in you. I bet so, it does. Uh, so I have always been fascinated with that. And uh, I started recording that. And over the years, I've built a database of, oh, man, little over 50, probably 55,000 medieval people. Right. Yeah. And uh, interesting, I think, you know, everybody I talk to who does this says the same thing. You're kind of almost drawn to it. There's something inherent in your being that makes you want to do that. I find it amazing that when I talk to people, they all say the same thing. Oh, yes. I, you know, I've got brothers that feel no pull at all. You know, I, whenever I start talking, I, I bore them to death because they say, Kai, you want to spend more time with your dead relatives than your living ones. And I tell <laughs> them that I do because... My, my dead relatives don't complain if I don't call or come by, and they never get mad if I don't visit. So there you go. And interesting about the Crockett, my, uh, my two children are adopted. So when my birth daughter turned, uh, my birth daughter, my daughter uh, turned 18, she wanted to find her birth parents. And so we did that, and they're from, uh, her, her birth dad is from, South Carolina, uh, I forget the exact town, but not, not too far from Columbia. And when I started looking back into, into her families, uh, she's a boon. Oh, cool. <laughs> so the, I, and I said to her, I said, you're a direct descendant of Daniel Boone. And she said, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to explain it. Um, the other interesting thing is that her, her birth mom I got her back to the Bassano brothers, who were musicians 
for the court of um, uh, Henry VIII. Oh, wonderful. So they That's went, they, yeah, they came from, from Italy to England as musicians. There was, I think, I think it was three brothers. And so, and she's also, she's also a Spencer. Well, that's interesting. They, they were highly motivated to play well if they were playing for Henry VIII. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> but they stayed, the, the one, her grandparents stayed there and he made a family there. And so, uh, you know, she's got, she's got an Italian grandmother going back a couple of generations. And then she's got an Italian grandfather going back to the, you know, 14th century or whatever, yeah. uh, which, is, which is really pretty cool. Uh, so a little spoiler alert, you know, for the Italians listening, Kai, as you can guess, is not Italian, uh, but he's done a lot of amazing research for me and helping me find my family back and connect a few links. So with that, Kai, um, could you explain to people who don't know what a gateway ancestor is? Oh, certainly. Uh, I got an email just the other day from a man wanting to know who I considered a gateway ancestor. And the definition of a gateway is not mine. Uh, A gateway ancestor is someone who came to the new world before 1700. And, and this is the important second criteria, also connects to medieval nobility or royalty. And so they have to meet those two criteria. Uh, For example, Mayflower ancestors are really neat, but only one of them is a gateway ancestor because they were poor religious people and they don't go back to nobility. In very few cases, we know who a Mayflower passenger's grandfather is but most people can't go beyond that. So that gateway has got to link. And if I can say, for example, my wife, in about 10 generations, there's 2,096 people in that generation. And in that generation, one of those 2,096 people is the Reverend Hot Wyatt. And he was the pastor or the vicar at the colony of Jamestown. And the neat thing about him is that he's a descendant of King Edward III of England. And his wife, who died before they he came to England, so she's not a gateway, but his wife was also a descendant of King Edward III, but through a different son. King Edward had about four or five sons. And so out of all the people in that generation, she has one that has medieval ancestry. And we have been able to build a complete six-generation pedigree on that one man. So that's what a gateway is, and that's why they're called gateways. Once you find that person, he opens it. 
or he, she opens up everything for you. Yeah, well, that's what, I mean, I didn't know. My gateway ancestor is in Italy, as you know, mm-hmm. and I stumbled upon my great-grandfather's card. Well, I didn't stumble upon it. We, we've had it for quite some time, and I was quite amazed to find what I found out. Uh, and I think that's a tough thing for Italians. Very, very difficult to find a link like that. I think I found maybe, out of all the people I've talked to and emailed and messaged and everything else, maybe five that could actually trace their ancestors back to some no, some nobility. And you would think it would be easier uh, over there, but it's not because when people came over, they didn't tell the stories about that. And right. nobody asked. We'll be right back. Italian Roots and Genealogy is proudly sponsored by your Dolce Vita and Dawn Matera, connecting people to their purpose in life and continuing their legacy. For more information, contact Dawn at www.yourdolcevita.com. See, Annette, it, and it's the same thing in my family in that I ask and I wrote that stuff down and had I not done that, it would be lost. And unfortunately, a lot of people lose their history that way. Right, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've always been a history buff. And, and to what we were saying earlier, some people just don't get it. Uh, so I'd like to ask you, when I first contacted you and I sent you um, the Cracciolo family and who I thought my links were. You confirmed that for me. How did you go about doing that and finding that? I know you have this huge database. Right. And not only do I have a huge database, but I have access to a lot of data that isn't commonly known. And so there's German references and other European references that I was able to find from your genealogy and tie into it. And then once I did that, of course, I added your information into my database. So I have it at my fingertips uh, permanently. And, you know, one of the things that fascinated me was finding that you descend from King Louis the Ninth, who we know in this country as St. Louis. And, uh, you know, just finding all of those connections. Uh, for me, doing medieval genealogy, some people do crossword puzzles. Some people do Sudoku. Uh, you know, this is much more complex, and it's much more rewarding. You've got something that is worth something, if you have that leaning towards your ancestors like you and I do. Yeah, so what advice would you give to someone, whether they're Italian like I am or whether they think they have ancestors or connections going, going back to you know the 1700s and maybe have a gateway ancestor? How would you guide them to try and find that out? Well... I would spend a lot of time in a genealogy library. That's one. And, you know, I come from a long line of American ancestors. I'm a 
13-generation American and an eight-generation Texan. And I have spent a lot of time in courthouses and searching old, dusty, musty record books. And But whenever you find that, there's just really something that, you know, you, you find a piece of paper that's 200 years old that has their actual signature on it. Something like that to me is just, it's thrilling. And so what I would, I would encourage everybody to do is start with all the information that they know. You know, you, you start with your own birthday, birthplace, and then you go to your parents and discover birth, marriage, and death, places, and dates, and then your four grandparents. And so each time you find that, you know, whenever you find your four grandparents, suddenly your work is double because you have eight great-grandparents, and then you have 16 great-great-grandparents. And so it's, it's rewarding, but don't get discouraged because as you go further and further back, you'll find gaps. And the thing is, is to find the ones that you can take back and take them back as far as you can and then come back and start with maybe that third or fourth generation on someone else and take that back and see where it leads. And, you know, that's what my wife and I have done with us. It took us 20 years of research to be able to cross the Atlantic Ocean and to get back to Great Britain, which is where Cindy and I both, our ancestors came from. I am mostly Scottish. She is mostly English. And she takes great pride in telling me that her ancestors always beat up on my ancestors. <laughs> that's, that's too funny. Well, I was amazed to find out that I had English ancestors. And I lived in England for a couple of years. And it's hard to put in words. But when you go to a place like Westminster, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and I had gone, I lived in England for a while. I had gone several times to Westminster but I never knew I had a connection right? until my last trip when I went over with my son and I said, these are my grandparents here, you know? Uh, it's, it's very, very amazing. And, and to your other point, I remember um, when I came across the signature of Count Giacomo on um, my second great-grandfather's birth, birth record it's amazing to see the signature of someone that you're related to that long ago. And my, um, my father's grandfather, who he's named after, his signature, not exact, but similar in the way he would sign to the way my father would sign his name. It's, it's just incredible to see that. Yes, it's, it's funny the things that are inherited, you know, and you mentioned you have adopted daughters. I also have two adopted daughters, but Cindy and I have two biological daughters as well. We have four girls, and we had two of our own, and then 
there were medical issues and my wife couldn't have any more, but we always felt like there was another couple of kids out there. So we wound up adopting two, and it was very interesting seeing the nurture versus nature play itself out in my daughter. Yes, yes, it is. That's true. We actually, actually, we have a son and a daughter, but they are so vastly different, even though they grew up in the same household. And that's true with even siblings. I mean, you know, uh, um, biological siblings, it's true, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, you, you, you inherit different things from different people. Um, and I came across, I don't know if I ever shared this with you, but I, I'll have to do that. I'll have to send you. I came across a uh, picture of um, my ninth great-grandfather, Prince Marino Caracciallo, uh, the Golden Fleece guy, or one of them. And I looked at it, and I said, I have a photograph of me, probably close to the same age as this guy. And we don't look exactly alike, but certain features, it's amazing. It's just incredible to see that. Uh, and, and, I, and I show it to other people, and you know, because I don't take anything at face value, and, and they say, you do resemble them. <laughs> you know, it's funny. And when you live in England and you go to the manor houses and you see the, you know, the Duke of Pimpernel from 1500 and you see the Duke of Pimpernel 16 generations later, they look alike. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, you know, in my own family, I can remember dating my wife and I was probably 17 or 18 and I had told her that Davy Crockett, uh, I'm not his grandson, I'm his nephew, you know, back. Uh, I descend from Davy's older brother. But in Texas, there are statues of him. And we went to a house of wax, and there was a really good wax statue of Davy Crockett. And... I looked around and nobody was in this little part of the gallery except Cindy and I. And so I hopped over the velvet rope and put my arm around that statue. <laughs> and I said, what do you think? Do I favor him? And she looked and she said, you know, you do. You've got the same jaw and chin and the same mouth. And, uh, and it's funny Years later, uh, my dad told me the story of his aunt was killed in a car wreck. And my grandfather identified his little sister. And the way he did it was by her jaw and her chin. And uh, it, it's a very distinctive feature in my family. And based on that wax statue, it may be a Crockett inherited trait, so. Right, and that's, that's true with my, uh, my dad's mom. Um, they have a very square jawline, and when I started connecting to the, some of the distant cousins in Italy, and they started sending me photographs, it's very prominent. Right. They have that, that, that featured jawline, that very prominent kind of jawline. Uh, and my sister always tells me they have the, it's the Sorrentino jawline. And I said, no, 
it's not the Sorrentino family. It's the Piramalo family. It's grandma's family. Right. <laughs> and she gets mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we do, we do the same thing. You know, people have said, well, this is, this is the family trait. And I said, yes, but it came through the female line a couple of generations before. It's really not that particular family. Yeah, that's, that's funny. So I know you, you've um, written a lot of, lot of different books, especially the Crusaders and, like you mentioned, Medieval. And I know you also do uh, Bespoke for Family. So could you talk a little bit about your research there and what you could do for somebody if they do have a gateway ancestor and want to document their family back? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've written three or four general books. But what I do specifically for clients, if they have a gateway ancestor, I have a database that if, if I can connect you to medieval nobility, and it makes no difference if it's Italian, Spanish, Hungarian, or British, or Danish, uh, if I can connect you to, to my database, I have the means that at the push of a button, I can tell it to generate a book, basically, but it's, it's a pedigree of every known ancestor. And it goes from the, from the present day, and I have people send me their family photos and their stories of their parents and grandparents that they want in there. And so... They will send me as much information as they have until they get to that gateway ancestor. And then from there, I have it in my computer. And so I tell the computer to generate that book with everybody in it. And it has every ancestor that they have all the way back. And so my typical book is right at 1600 1700 pages and that's broken into four volumes because amazon.com won't let me print more than 500 pages in a volume simply because of the binding but the grand total of all the volumes is usually somewhere between 15 and 1700 pages it has somewhere between 4000 and 7000 footnotes. And my wife and I do a lot of charts that highlight specific things. And so it comes with about a, a hundred of our specific charts to highlight, for example, the Lucinian Crusader family of France or something like that, because a picture is worth a thousand words. And so I believe in those charts, but that's the typical book that I put together and I say at the touch of a button, but, and that's true, but I push the button and I come back about 12 hours later <laughs> and that's how long it takes to generate that. And then it takes me about a month working almost full time to get it print ready, to make sure that everything is lined up within the margins and there's no blank pages or anything like that. 
to get it print ready. And then I submit it to Amazon and it goes through their editing process. And then I have a publishable book with an ISBN number. It's there forever. So if you order one copy and 15 years later, a nephew or something like that wants a copy of it, it's there. And uh, that's the neat thing about that. Yeah, no, that's that's wonderful. That's great. And, you know, if somebody else wants to order it either now or later or uh, they have that they have that readily available. And um, I haven't gotten there yet, but I, I really want to do that one day. But I did do the I did have you do my chart. And uh, what I find fascinating or the best part about your charts is they aren't busy. They're very easy to follow. And for people listening or may want to look at it, I'm going to have the links out there where you could get a chart that Kai makes or the book. But uh, it's very easy to follow the path back to the, you know, from a gateway ancestor back to the nobility of of Europe. So maybe you could expand on that a little bit, Kai, on how you create those charts and why you do it that way as opposed to the traditional, you know, fan chart or something like that. Right. We, we do it that way to put as many illustrious people on a chart as we can. And the other thing that we do that's significantly different from everyone else is sometimes you'll see a, a chart and you have lines crossing and that sort of thing. And it, after a while, it begins to look like a circuit wiring diagram. And so we don't do that. Our charts are full color. And if, for example, if you've got an ancestor that uh, you descend from both, you've got an ancestor whose mother and father both have royal lines, like the man that I mentioned, Cindy's ancestor, the reverend and his wife, both go back to King Edward III. But there's a lot of stuff that one one of those, you know, the wife has that the husband doesn't. And so we we use color coding to show that that person appears somewhere else on the chart. The other thing that we do that makes our charts, I think, really stand out and attractive is besides the 50,000 person database, I have a database of about 3,000 coats of arms. And so we put those on the chart. And I've had people say, oh, well, you're like one of those kiosks in the mall. (laughs) And we're not. We don't sit there and say, oh, because your last name is Sorrentino or White, everybody with that last name is entitled to that coat of arms. You're not. They're individual. But if you descend from an individual who had a coat of arms, we will put that coat of arms on the chart. And heraldry those coats of arms, if you know how to read them, will tell a genealogy story all their own. And uh, it's, it's fascinating, at least to me. 
Yeah, to me too. And, and I know a lot of people think that um, because they have that same last name that they're entitled to that. But, you know, I know from my research that it really only belongs to one person. But it's nice to think that, you know, you, you, know, you could have sat next to the prince one day or something like that. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's what I like about it. And, you know, it does give you a little bit of bragging rights, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, I, I know the, uh, the, the charts are really, really cool. So I want to ask you one thing about, because we've all been watching it now for several, several years, is the Vikings. I know I have a link back to Rolo. I think I may even have one back to Ragnar, who I'm not sure is really real, but I think Rolo is. Can you explain to people, Rolo, Ragnar, were they really brothers? Did all this stuff really happen the way it is? I know it didn't, but maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Absolutely. If you go back to English royalty, to William the Conqueror, his father's father's father back about six or maybe at seven generations is Rollo the Dane. And from Rollo, we can trace his lineage back about another five or six generations. Uh, I will say that the Viking Department of Vital Statistics was not up to current standard. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of gaps in there. But, but Rollo and Ragnar were not brothers. And there is no document that mentions from the time of, Ro of Ragnar about Ragnar. What is pretty well documented are Ragnar's sons. But there's not a piece of paper that says Bjorn Ironsides was his son or Ivar the Boneless was his son or Sigurd Snake in the Eye was his son. There's not. Contemporary. The, the sagas, they're called, were written about anywhere from 200 to 400 years after the time of Ivar the Boneless and Bjorn Ironsides. And so the Viking bards, storytellers, could recite the lineage and everything else, but it wasn't written down, like I said, from 200 to 400 years after they all lived. And so... You can take that and accept it, or you can say, well, there's no document from that time that does it. So, you know, the other thing in, in the Vikings is Ivar could not have children. Uh, he was impotent. That's not the case. There are documented sons of Ivar the Boneless, you know. So uh, they don't know if he had brittle bones or you know, why, they don't know why he got the name, but it wasn't because he was impotent. He had, he fathered sons and, uh, you know, and I don't think he was very brittle boned either. You don't become king of Northern England and Ireland 
if you can't fight, at least not that way. Yeah, not well, that's so when, when we watch it, we laugh about it because I, I say if, if he was really the way they're portraying him, I don't think he would have been around and in these positions that he was, all these things that he was supposedly doing in the, you know, the Viking saga as we watch it on TV. Uh, the, yes, and the other thing is, is Lagertha or Lagertha, mm-hmm. the, the shield maiden. Yes. There is, she's a story, but the birth order of the sons is not right. All of those sons that are in the Vikings were the children of Eslog, you know, where Bjorn is the child of his first wife and all the others, the children of his second wife. And historically, they don't know that Lagertha lived. All of the sons are children of, uh, of Aslog, and Bjorn wasn't the oldest. So, you know, they take a few... Oh, shoot. What do you call it? They take Liber- a- yeah, they take in liberties with the, the stories. Exactly. Yeah. I know when I watched some of these, especially when I started doing um, my research and I started watching um, the Borgias, I was sitting there with my wife and saying, that's my grandfather and that's my aunt and this one's this. And, you know, uh, again, they did the same thing because they had, um, they portrayed... Um, I think it was Francesco Gonzaga's wife as like a lunatic when right. actually his wife was Isabella d'Este who was, you know, I, I, I always say she was like the Jackie Kennedy of the, you know, 1400s. Um, <laughs> right. And, and I, sat, I, said, I said to my I said, why, are they, why, why did they do this? History is so fascinating in itself. Why do they feel the need to make up stuff? to fit some kind of crazy story. I don't get exactly. it. Exactly. I can remember having several conversations when the movie Braveheart came out, you know, 15 years ago, because there were people that actually believed that William Wallace was the father of Edward III, that he slept with the French princess, you know, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, William Wallace was put to death before King Edward II married the French princess. He was already king before uh, that wedding took place. And so William Wallace died long before the French princess ever came to England. They never met. You know, so that whole premise of the movie is wrong. And, uh, yeah, you know, I know. But it's a good movie. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no. Most, most of them, most of them are. Most of them are. But uh, like I said, I, I always, uh, maybe because I'm a history buff, like even when I'm doing my own research and even when I, when I, when I talk to you or when I confirm some stuff with, uh, the people in Italy, I always err on the side of doubt. Like, I'm not taking anything at face value. I have to know that these people are 
you know, really my people. Otherwise, what's the point? I'm only kidding myself, you know? Yeah. You know, the, about the only thing that was accurate about Braveheart is he really did have a wife who was killed. And so it's very doubtful that he has any descendants today, you know, but, uh, right, right. but like I said, I, I thought the movie deserved, you know, the best picture Oscar. So there you go. So yeah. I, there's, I'd like to ask you one more thing and that's around Charlemagne because there's a lot of myths around him and people say, well, everybody's related to Charlemagne in some way, shape or form, which I suppose is true. I mean, he's probably got millions and millions of descendants. Right. My argument with them is always, while that's true, if you could trace it, it's really cool. So right. can you explain about, you know, Charlemagne? I've heard that there are male heir, there were male heirs, still there aren't, that the only heirs of Charlemagne today of through the female lines. And that is true. All of the males, uh, you know, they're, they're called the Carolingian dynasty because mm -hmm. Char Charles uh, in Latin is Carol. And so Charlemagne was Carolus Magnus, which is Charles the Great in Latin. And about six generations uh, from Charlemagne, the last male heir was blinded and castrated, and that ended the line. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a rough way to end the line. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, you know, but they made sure, and it's the same thing with the Merovingian dynasty, you know, uh, the male line died out, and once the Merovingians died, then the Carolingians took over. And so it's, it's been that way. Uh, the successors of the Carolingians were the Capes, the ruling house of France. And of course, with the French Revolution, they're not there now. Mm -hmm. But the male, but the king of Spain is a bourbon. And the bourbons were a younger house of the house of Capet. The king of Spain today, through the male line, can trace to Hugh the Great Capet, who, you know, it's about 1,100 years. Wow, that's amazing. It is amazing. Wow, I'm I'm am stunned that he could, that that male line lasted that long. Yeah, and he has a son, so it it's going to keep coming, you know. And he's a direct one of his male heirs uh, was King Louis the Fourteenth, which everyone's heard of. Mm -hmm. So the King of Spain is a male line descendant of Louis the Fourteenth. Wow, that's something. That's something. Well, Kai, this has been fascinating, as I knew it would be. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook in the Italian Genealogy Group or at www.
italiangenealogy.blog. I was using another podcast host until I switched to Buzzsprout. I found that Buzzsprout offered much more for half the cost. For example, better access to get your podcast on directories such as Apple and Spotify, better tools to embed your podcast, and a free website. Check them out and receive a $20 Amazon gift card after signing up.